Let's open our Bibles to the 8th chapter. But before we start reading in the 8th chapter, I'd like to sum up some uh, comments on the sin, sin offering and the trespass offering. We didn't quite get through with our comments in chapters uh, uh, 6 and 7. I mean 7 and 8. Because in 7 we had the trespass offering. The law of the trespass offering. And uh, of course we have some things connected with the sin offering as well. Uh, but uh, when we pick up with chapter 8 in a little bit, we'll be discussing the priest's uh, garments and uh, their uh, clothing and their work. Now, I know that that's going a little bit ahead of time, but really not so because uh, remember the 6th and 7th chapters are kind of the law of the offerings that we studied earlier. But concerning the trespass offering, we find that there was confession to be made. If you remember in uh, the... Uh, Sixth chapter, it tells us that he should confess his sins. What was that in the fifth chapter? But anyway, yeah, in fifth chapter, verse five, it says, And it shall be when he shall be guilty in one of these things that he shall confess that he has sinned in that thing, and he shall bring his trespass offering. So you have that thought of confession. And the offering as well concerning uh, the trespass offering. And then the sin offering is much akin to it, which we read the law of these offerings in chapters uh, seven, uh, 6 and 7. Now, concerning the trespass offering, unconfessed sin becomes a canker in the heart if we fail to confess. And the Bible tells us, I gave you a scripture in the New Testament, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us. That means us, we who are Christians, from all sin. And it says cleanseth, which shows a continuous action and a continuous need, by the way, because we all need daily cleansing and continuous cleansing. And that's where the trespass offering in the Old Testament comes in. Because it speak, speaks of specific things that the people do. And we know that there are many things that we're guilty of. Some we're more mindful of than we are of others. But unconfessed sin becomes a canker in the heart. If we know it's there, especially if we know it's there, it can really become a canker in the heart. And confession brings it out and looks looks at it in, in God's light and makes it ugly and horrible and inspires sorrow for the guilt of that sin and hatred of that sin and a sincere de desire to be rid of it. You know, most of us, we want to be rid of the wrongs that we do. And if there's not that desire, then something hasn't been affected uh, in our lives like it should be. And confession's Confession brings God back to reign in our lives. And that's what we want. God to rule and to reign in our lives. And Paul says in Romans chapter 6, I believe it's 
verse 14, he says, Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. So sin is not going to rule in your life. It's not going to dominate you. It's not going to keep you in bondage. And Paul tells us in the book of Galatians that if we walk in the Spirit, we shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So we have a battle going on in our hearts and lives uh, all the while. And we'll have that continuously until we're gone from this earth. Because we have a new nature, a divine nature, and we have an old nature. Someone thinks that, you know, people have been wrongly instructed that once you become a Christian, you, you've gotten rid of that old nature. No, that's not true. And I think experience will tell you that. Your own heart will tell you that. And our own deeds and our own actions will tell us that. And so we can readily see it if we just have our eyes open to it. Now, the prodigal never loved home so much as when he came out of the hog pen and back to the father's house. Then he really loved home. He didn't like it before that. He thought he was in bondage and he thought that he had too much to, to uh, do and he wasn't getting proper recognition and he wanted all that he had and he asked for his <coughs> portion of the inheritance. And the Father gave it to him. And the Bible says he took all that he had and went into a far country. And there he wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, he found himself feeding the hogs for a citizen of that country. And then he got to thinking. You know, it doesn't hurt to think a little bit once in a while. And he said, you know, he says, in my father's house there's bread and enough to spare. And I perish with hunger. And the Bible says he would have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat. Can you imagine out going out in the hog pen and and looking in that old bucket that you slop the hogs with and taking out an old soggy biscuit? That's what he would have done. He was so hungry. But he didn't do that. Because he says, I will arise and I will go to my Father and I will say unto my Father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against thee and I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And the Bible says he arose and came to his father. And while he was yet a great way off, his father saw him. You know, our heavenly father sees us when we're way off in the far country. And he longs for our return. Nothing would please him more. And so he started this little repentance speech to the father. And he said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against thee. I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. And he stopped him. The father stopped him. He was going to say, make me as one of your hired servants. The father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put on him, put a ring on his hand, put shoes on his feet, go out and kill the fatted calf and let's have a feast. And they began to be merry. I like that part where it says, when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him. I think of God in heaven before the world began and Christ, the Son of God. Before we were, before we'd ever seen, we were a great way off and He knew we'd be in the far country. He saw us before eternity. He looked down through the ages and He saw every one of us. See, time is nothing to God. He sees the end from the beginning. 
It's all one big now for God. Yesterday, today, and forever is one now. We have to come to it in our short little span of life. Some three score and ten, and maybe some nowadays live to be 95 or even 100 years old. But in that little short time, and by the way, it is short, we come to things in time. But God sees it all. One big panorama view of everything. Aren't you glad that God sees it that way? And when we were yet a great way off, He saw us in our sins, in our need, in our need for Christ. And so Jesus was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, it says in Revelation 13, verse 8. The Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So, God could see us in our sins and in our misery and in our burden. And He knew we needed a Redeemer. And He purposed in eternity past to send that Redeemer, His only begotten Son. And we many times quote John 3.16 with very little depth, but it's there. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And God did that for you and you and I. You know, sometimes we look at the Bible and we think, well, you know, God is a God of judgment and justice, and we had to be punished for our sins, but we only... Sometimes we think just Jesus loved us. But God the Father loved us enough to give His only begotten Son. It says God so loved the world. Doesn't it? That's God the Father. And then God the Son willingly went to the cross. So, sometimes we fail to realize Jesus said He... Jesus Himself said, The Father also loveth you. He wanted to point that out in the Gospel of John. The Father also loveth you. So let's know that the whole of the Godhead, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, all are the three persons of the Trinity and that God is love. I had a fellow call me from Capitan the other day. And I talked to him for about oh, at least 30 minutes, maybe 45. He couldn't understand how that there could be the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. And he says, yet God is one. I said, yes. Well, God is one. One, one Godhead, but they're three different persons. And I tried to explain to him. I used the the thought of a husband and wife. The Bible says, They twain shall be one flesh. What God therefore is joined together, let not man put asunder. And that's marriage, isn't it? But they're two persons, two individuals. And if you can't recognize that a man and a woman are different... <laughs> In many ways, 
But they're, they're individuals, aren't they? And yet, God is one God. But there's three persons in the Godhead. The Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have all three represented when Jesus was baptized. Remember? God the Father spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Right? And the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, the symbol of a dove, lighted upon Him. So you have God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Son was being baptized. You have over in the book of Acts, I believe it's the fifth chapter, where Peter rebukes uh, Ananias. And he says, Thou hast not Why has Satan... Listen carefully. Why has Satan filled thine heart to lie against the Holy uh, lie against God. And he was lying to the Holy Spirit. He says, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? Thou hast, he goes on to say, Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. When he lied to the Holy Spirit, he lied to God. You look at it very strictly with your own eyes. Look in the book of, of uh, Acts if you will. And look in chapter 5. Beginning with verse 1, But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira's wife sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it. Now, they did this because... Uh, 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 Barnabas, in the last two verses of the fourth chapter, he had a piece of land. And it says in verse 37, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So Ananias and Sapphira thought, well, you know, we've got this land. We'll sell it. And we'll tell Peter we lay, sold it for so much and we, we'll keep back part of the price, but we'll give him part of it. Well, now, he didn't have to give them anything. You know, let's go on and read it. It says, And kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart <coughs> to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? While it remained, was it not in thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? You could have kept it all. Except it had been good if you had given your tithe out of it. But you kept it all. Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Now look, thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. Now verse 3 says to lie to the Holy Ghost. Verse 4 says, thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. So I made this point only to show you that when you lie to the Holy Spirit, you're lying to God. And uh, anyway, we'll continue with our comments on uh, confess sin. We need to confess our sins. Had one preacher one time was preaching, and you know sometimes these evangelists get carried away quite a bit, and they skip a lot of scriptural truth and just apply scriptures. And they said, you know, uh, he wanted to preach on tithing. He should have took Malachi three before he did that instead of. That one about Peter and Ananias and Sapphira. But he said, you know, God killed him because he didn't give his tithe. That was not what it says there. 
That's not what it says there. But you know, as I say, this guy, I remember him very well. I could call his name, but I will not. But he's preaching a revival in a little church down there in Texas. And we were attending the service. And he was a converted alcoholic and great big guy from Florida. And uh, pretty, pretty prominent in the evangelistic field. And he was just always making remarks that they were good remarks maybe in a way, but they didn't fit Scripture hardly at all. And you know, I think remarks ought to fit the Bible, don't you? When a preacher's preaching, it ought, he ought to have some basis in the Bible for saying what he says. And I've seen a lot of them like that. But he got up and he was just really, really going to town that night and preaching everything but, but uh, what the Scripture actually said. Pretty exciting to most people. But you know, those evangelists sometimes can get real exciting without giving you scriptural truth. And they can use their, their uh, charisma. They can use their uh, words even, even if they're not right. Well, let's don't do that. If you're a teacher and preacher of the Word, you stick to the Word. And I'll guarantee you there's enough there to show us what we need. You don't have to manufacture ideas. You preach the Word. Paul said to Timothy, Preach the Word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. And that's what we're to do. He says, The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. So, we need to realize that it's worth sticking to God's Word. So, the prodigal, the last statement we made, never loved home so much as when he came out of the hog pen and back to the Father's house. Now, peace with God and joy in the Lord and rest in conscience never seem so sweet to us as when we've lost them and, and found them again. When a Christian gets out of fellowship with God and his peace is disturbed and everything is going wrong, it never seems so sweet as when he returns. I would say, if we get away from God, the, the sooner that we can return to the Lord and say, Lord, I want Your blessings. I want Your help. I need Your fellowship. And the sooner we can do that, the better off we are. I mean, don't waste any time. Get there quickly. Because other, otherwise, all the while you're away, you will be disturbed. Your peace and your fellowship will be disturbed. We don't want that disturbed, do we? We want harmony in our Christian life. We want harmony in our homes. We want harmony in the church. And there's no greater blessing than these things among Christians. So let's pray that all of us will have that in our own hearts and in our own lives. And know that that is necessary if we're to really enjoy uh, the peace of God. And uh, a precious jewel is never so precious as when it is found again. Remember the woman that had all the coins? 
She lost one in the dark corner of the room. I believe you'll find it in Luke 15. There's three parables there. One of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, the prodigal son. It's the 15th of Luke. And all three of them teach a lesson. That when something's lost, when it's found again, it becomes more precious. The shepherd never thought so much of the sheep than when he found it and brought it home again. That's the first part of Luke 15. The woman never so prized that lost coin till she had found it in the dark corner and fastened it uh, together with the others that she had. Restored communion brings increase, power, and the desire to be used of the Lord. Restored fellowship. Look in Psalm 51, if you will. Psalm 51. David is praying. And he says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to Thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of Thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. He was praying a prayer of repentance concerning his fall in taking Bathsheba and his sin against Uriah the Hittite. And all that had come into his life at that time with that one fall. Here's David, a king, a man after God's own heart, had fallen into terrible sin. And he was out of fellowship with God. And he says, Wash me throughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. He was conscious of it, wasn't he? Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. He gets that from the book of Exodus. They took the hyssop and put it on the lintel in the doorpost, and cleansing came through the blood. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. We sing a song like that. Lord Jesus, I long to be perfectly whole. I want You forever to live in my soul. Take down every every idol. Cast out every foe. Something like that. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Isn't that a wonderful way to be in the presence of God? Then it says, Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face, hide thy face from my sin and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Now I want to show you something. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Now look. Restore unto me, look at verse 12 and 13. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then, circle that word then, underline it or something. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted into thee. Restored communion brings increased power and a desire to be used of the Lord. So that's restoration. David was restored. And then he says, then will I teach transgressors thy way. If we're not restored, we cannot teach transgressors the way of God. A Christian out of fellowship with God has very little testimony. Do you know that? If any. But he says, then, there's a point when you do this. Verse 12, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. He didn't say, Restore unto me the salvation. 
He had salvation. But when he was restored, he says, Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. The whole psalm is the tenor and the idea and the desire for repentance and restoration and fellowship with God. Our Lord Jesus Christ is our great high priest takes our confession and brings it to the Father. The Bible tells us we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but He was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. And the Bible says, Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Same thing as 1 John 1, nine says, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us for our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Father is faithful and just. And God would be unjust not to forgive my sin after the trespass offering has been made. Christ is that trespass offering. And the trespass offering has been made, and certainly He will forgive our sins. And because God is faithful and just, He receives our confession, He forgives our sin, He purges it, and He fully cleanses uh, the sinning Christian. You read in Isaiah chapter 6, <clears throat> verses 1 through 6. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up in His train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. And with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of Him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, look at this. This is Isaiah. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone. He didn't say this rotten bunch of people that I have tried to deal with. He says, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Before that, he had seen only Uzziah. But it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord. Verse 1. See, he had finally gotten his eyes off a man and he got his eyes upon the Lord. You know, there's a, a world of difference between looking at man and looking at God. Some people get their eye on some evangelist, some preacher, some famous name. Some celebrity. Get your eyes off of men and get your eye upon God. I saw also the Lord high and lifted up. His train filled His temple. But He says, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar, and he laid it upon my mouth, and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. I've taken away your iniquity, your sin. And then he was ready to serve God. Look, 
Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? By the way, who will go for us? More than one in the Godhead, right? Then said I, Here my Lord, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people. And so he sent Isaiah to go and proclaim the message. Later on it tells Isaiah. Isaiah says, Lord, how long will I do this? He says, you just keep on doing it. Look at the rest of it. I, this is too good to leave. And he said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert, and be healed. Then said I, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. And the Lord have removed the men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. But it shall be a tenth, and it shall return, and shall be eaten as a teal tree, green tree, and as an oak, whose substance is in them when they cast their leaves, so the holy seed shall be the substance thereof, be like the stick or the root or the stem of it. And it will come out of that. See, God promises that there will be a reward and that there will be some saved. But He told Isaiah, He says, you go and just keep on. He says, the cities are going to be wasted without inhabitant. God knew that He was sending Isaiah to a people who had hard hearts and, and stopped ears. And He says, lest they hear and convert, and I healed them. <coughs> and there was a possibility of some, so He had to preach to the many. That's what we do today. Only because there's a possibility of someone hearing and converting do we continue to preach. Because many will not hear. Many will not hear. Isn't it sad that we live in a nation, in a country, in a place where many will not listen? I was going to finish this tonight, this portion. Well, let's go on. Uh, so, <coughs> we find that when a Christian sins against another Christian, he sins against another member of the body of Christ and therefore sins against Christ Himself. Did you know when you sin against another Christian, you're sinning against Christ Himself? Because they're part of His body. Sometimes we don't realize that, do we? We say, well, you know, let them go their way and I'll go mine. And, you know, we, we have an indifferent attitude. We ought to understand that we're all united to the Lord. And we have to realize that. Just like in the book of Acts chapter 9. Turn to Acts chapter 9. Remember when Saul was yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord? He went to the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, that way it was called this way in the early text, the Christian life, those that were born again, children of God. Any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound into Jerusalem. That's verse 2 of 9, 
uh, ninth chapter of Acts. I did give you the right verse, didn't I? The right chapter. Okay. And of the right book, I hope. Acts. Okay, verse 3. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. Now, I wanted to read this to make one point. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul. Now, look at this. Why persecutest thou me? That's Jesus. He wasn't persecuting Jesus personally. At least he thought he wasn't. He was persecuting Christians, right? But the Lord took it as a personal offense. And he says, why persecutest thou me? And he said, who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. You see the connection? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. They had gold, sharp-pointed sticks that they poked the heels of the oxen or the mule or whatever it was to make them plow. To get them from being so lazy. Kind of prick their heels. He says, you're just like one of those stubborn mules or ox, oxen. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. What, did, what was Paul's prayer of repentance and salvation and calling all at one time? He prayed the repentant, he prayed the sinner's prayer, he prayed the Christian's prayer for service, he was willing to surrender to be an apostle, all at one whack. He said, Lord, he recognized him as Lord. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved. And he said, What wilt thou have me to do? That was surrender, wasn't it? He was ready to go and do anything God wanted him to do. And he tells him later on in this chapter, he called him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And so you read the whole story. So, what do we see here? That when one Christian sins against another, we've just pointed out that he sins against a member of the body of Christ. And certainly, Jesus took Paul's persecution of Christians as a direct uh, uh, persecution to him. He says, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. And that's the way the Lord feels about it when, when we have these problems below here. Whether it's before we're converted or after. So we, we must realize that we are to live with one another and love one another and fellowship with one another and care for one another. There's no other way out. That's a, that's a necessity in our lives as a Christian, as a child of God, as a member of His body, of His flesh, and of His bone. And as the Bible teaches, that's what we are. Now then, uh, in the trespass offering, the, the offer must make restoration for the sin he committed and add one-fifth part to the principle. Remember, it says... He'll add one-fifth part to the principle of that which he took away or that which he caused the loss of or wrong uh, to another. 
In other words, instead of a tithe, it was a double tithe. Instead of 10%, it was 20%. He had to really make restitution. Now, this teaches us three lessons. Expiation, restoration, and addition. The word expiation is the act of making satisfaction. So Christ took away the penalty of our sins, completely satisfying the holy God. This was done in the trespass offering, and Jesus did this. And then restoration is the act of restoring that which was taken away. And Christ fully satisfied the guilt uh, and deceit of sin. <clears throat> and Christ proclaimed throughout the universe by His death the exceeding sinfulness of sin and the glorious righteousness of God. And by the death of Christ, He's broken down every barrier and purchased all rights to the world. He will restore it as it was at the beginning. In fact, it will be greater than it was to the, at the beginning. And He will give the world back to God as it was first created, free from sin, stained, and shame and sickness and pain and from death and every rebellious will. He'll restore that. Aren't you glad that there's coming a day of complete, total restoration for mankind? That, that day's coming. When Jesus comes again and when the things of Scripture are fulfilled. Let me read in Revelation chapter 21, if you will, verse 5. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. All things. Let's read before that. Verses 1 through 4. And I saw a new heaven. This is Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. That means the earth itself was cleansed by fire. Peter speaks of that day. John speaks of that day. The Scripture teaches that day. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Just like when Jesus came down and tabernacled among us. And He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be with them and be their God. A day of rejoicing will come. Now look in verse 4. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. No more death. Every tear shall be wiped away. Every broken heart will be healed. Every stream of sorrow will be ended. Every spring of grief will be dried. Tears of misfortune will be wiped away. You know, people say, I've had so many misfortunes in my life. Tears of disappointment and neglect, they'll be gone. Tears of penitence, you won't have to repent anymore. It'll all be done. Tears of poverty will be gone. Tears of bereavement. The bereavement that we have over the loss of the loved ones. Those tears will be wiped away. Thank God that will be true. 
and tears of sympathy and mercy. That doesn't mean we won't still have sympathy and mercy. We will have it. But we won't have the tears. We won't have the sorrow attached to it. You know, there's, there's tears when you have sympathy and there's tears when you have mercy. But they won't even be... All tears. It says God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. doesn't say some of them. It says all of them. And there will be no more death that touches every heart, that enters every home. For the former things are passed away. He says, I will make all things new. And He said unto me, Right, for these words are true and faithful. You know, Job of old said, Oh, that my words were now written, that they were printed in a book, that they were graven with an iron pen upon a rock. Forever. Well, they're printed in God's Word. What Job cried out is written, and we read it. Even today, we read about Job and everything. He said, I know that my Redeemer liveth, that He shall stand at the latter days upon the earth, though after my skin worms destroy this body. Yet in my flesh I'll be resurrected. Shall I see God whom I shall behold for myself and not another? He said, I'm going to see Him someday. Even after death and even after I'm gone, even after this old body of corruption and decay takes place, I'm still going to be rising again and seeing. Isn't that a wonderful notion? Well, we're not through yet. So, there was uh, that part of it. And then we find that when Christ restores the earth, it will be a perfect earth. It will be perfect. In addition, we said three things. We said there would be expiation, there would be restoration, there would be addition. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the true trespass offering. will give to God the principle plus the fifth part thereof. In which He will restore to God all that He lost in the world through the sin of Adam. And He'll add to it. The Lord says, I'll give a double tithe of all that Adam took away. I'm going to restore it fully and I'm going to give you twice as much again. But He will do it he will do more. He will not give uh, God a world full of atoms, but a world full of redeemed people and regenerated people. Regenerated men. Shining in the image of Christ who redeemed them. Glorifying the Father in His grace. Think of that for a moment. The Bible says, Behold, listen, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. That we should be called the sons of God. Children of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew Him not. And then he goes on to say, this is 1 John chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. And he says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Right here and now. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. We'll have a glorified body like the Lord. It's almost unbelievable, isn't it? We say we believe, but it's unbelievable in some sense of the word. But it says, We shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And it goes on to say, And every man that hath this hope in Him goes out and lives for the world in the flesh. doesn't say that, does it? 
Every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself. Look at your Scripture. Even as he is pure. The incentive to a godly and holy life is based upon the fact that we know when Jesus comes again, we're going to be transformed and translated and we're going to be like Him and we're going to have a body that is incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1. Begin with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath begotten us again unto a lively or living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Thank God. I think I'm through preaching tonight. Let's quit. We'll pick up with chapters 8 and 9 because we haven't read verses especially in this particular time. We've already read the verses of Scripture, but when we get to chapters 8 and 9, we talk about the consecration of the priests and many things about them because chapters 6 and 7 have to do with uh, the uh, things, the laws of the offerings that we've seen.